Pastor Dave Asher. Well, I know it probably feels like bait and switch. We told you, come and hear Andrew, and here I am. Well, I'm, just consider me like the warm-up band, you know, before we get into the really good stuff. I'm really looking forward to hearing Andrew. I've, I've, uh, uh, I, when I went to Greyfriars in 1997, the Crappershoots, I believe, had just really started coming down there at the same time. They were living up in Spokane, I think, at the time, and traveled down. And uh, uh, so I've known, I've known the family for a long time, and it's... Uh, whenever I've had a chance to hear Andrew speaking, it's always a lot of fun. So looking forward to that. Let me throw this. Well, let's open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I do thank you uh, for the ability to gather together, to uh, consider your word and consider it together as men, to, to think about what it means to uh, receive the call, to subdue the earth, to take dominion, to, to engage in the cultural mandate, to think about it with regard to our lives um, and our livelihoods as well, and, and to be able to think about it um, with hope that you are at work doing a great work for your kingdom upon this earth to the glory of your name through your son Jesus Christ who lives and reigns at your right hand. So help us to uh, open our eyes and hearts to the things that you're doing in our lives, and especially as we consider right now taking dominion of ourselves, for we need to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we talk about the world around us and the call for us to subdue it and take dominion of it, before we talk about uh, all that is wrong with the world and all that needs to be done, and before we talk about, and I think, I I do pray that this is kind of the direction that that, uh, Andrew will go, that the exciting opportunities that exist for Christians to take advantage of all kinds of opportunities all around us for the sake of the gospel and for, in, in the midst of our callings and our skills, we need to consider the requirement that we take dominion of ourselves first. You can't export what you don't have. And that includes the insight and ability, the wisdom, to see yourself rightly in light of the Word of God and to see, maybe more importantly, to see how God sees you in light of His power and promises. To understand how God sees you in light of His power and promises. Now, um, I'm going to be talking about taking dominion of yourself, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time um, in, the, uh, in the areas of, of talking about, like, mortifying the flesh, although that is an important topic, of, of taking up your cross daily, of denying yourself. Um, uh, we'll touch on that, but, but really, I'm going to lean in another direction. I'm going to consider taking dominion of yourself in light of the promise of God to complete the good work he has begun and to see how that helps us to have a more optimistic and energetic work of growing up in Christ, of really believing God's word that, of what he is going to accomplish in your life, in our lives, in generations, um, in, in, uh, in this world for the sake of the gospel. So my goal is to inspire us by means of the word to, to, to follow Christ by taking dominion of ourselves. I'm going to lay out nine proposals, nine proposals for taking dominion of yourself. So here they are. Number one. Number one is consider your sanctification in light of God's power and promises. Um, our, 
we understand that our justification is a once-for-all act that is, is the work of Christ, the work of God through Jesus Christ for us, and that the work of sanctification is that ongoing work. And sanctification often, often is kind of considered like a bad word, like, you know, that's the terrible stuff that we kind of have to go through until finally we, we go into glory. Well, what if instead sanctification, we, we thought of it, first of all, in light of, of God's power and promises. Listen to two verses. First of all, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship, it says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means God has, God has before, before you have the opportunity to walk in any good works, he's already prepared them for you to walk in them. And, and another thing is, is that you are, you are his workmanship. Um, I have no intention to blaspheme him in any way, but in, in one sense, he is being sanctified. Well, what do I mean by that? His, he, is, he is working on his works. He's working on his workmanship. He's working on you. He's working on me. And as he's doing so, he is sanctifying. He's in the process of sanctifying. He's in the process of sanctifying the bride of his son. He's in the process of sanctifying the church. He's in the process of sanctifying you and me. He's in, he's in the work of sanctification. And then also Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of, of Jesus Christ. He's going to complete it. It's going to work. Um, try as hard as you might <laughs> to not make it complete, not make it work. Not, God is going to complete the good work that he's begun in you, and it's, it, it's going, you are going to arrive at final sanctification and glorification. He's going to get you there. In both of these texts, what we're directed to notice is to find our confidence in God and stop trying to find confidence in ourselves, which should give us the opportunity to breathe a sigh of relief. If we are God's workmanship and he promises to complete the work he has begun, then when it comes to taking dominion of ourselves, the, our, our faith is in God, in his grace, in his power and not in ours. The question is whether or not we have a true understanding of his power, grace, and purpose for us. You are an immortal being right now. You are going to live forever. And in Christ, you are going to live forever in the presence of God. Do you think he's going to screw it up? <laughs> he... He, he's, he is going to make sure that you are perfected before him, that you live with God, with, with him, and with his people forever. And his ongoing work is in you then is just that. It's ongoing. And it is also promised for us then, not just that it's ongoing, but what the telos is, what the end is, what the end game is. And it will end with your complete sanctification. So that's something to believe first and then act on. To believe first and then act on. Consider your sanctification in light of God's power and promises. That's number one. Number two is to go hand in hand, and that is recognize at the same time that you are a piece of work. In other words, you need a lot of work. You, you, you need a lot of work. We, we, we have a lot of remaining sin to deal with. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
there is a lot of work to be done. And so number one, the, the number one of, of believing the promises and power of God, um, what he plans to do, is no excuse at all to sit back and take it easy. And God's not going to let you. <laughs> See, God loves you, and like a loving father, or more importantly, uh, the, the pattern for loving fathers comes from God the Father. God loves you, and as a loving father, you should expect much discipline from him. You should expect him hands-on to provide lots of discipline and discipleship in your life. Um, I said this recently in a sermon talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I think that being filled with the Holy Spirit is a lot, is a lot less it's not so much like smoking pot and getting high in some kind of spiritual way. Ooh, I'm filled with the Spirit. As, mu as much as it is, it's more like having a coach who's been brought in, who is going to make you run suicides until you throw up, who is pushing you to lift one more set of squats when you don't think you have any more to give. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. A good coach. A good, a good coach who knows what he is going to make of you. And he knows what it's going to take to make you what he wants you to be. Or to flip, change the metaphor, it is like a great um, home, uh, one of those home shows where the, they pull up to one of those dumpy houses and then they tell the people to go away and then there's a complete home makeover. That's, that's, what, he, that's what he's up to as well. He's coming to your residence by the Holy Spirit and there's a major makeover taking place. He intends to dive into every nook and cranny, every dark closet, every room in your life. You're invited to join with him in working out your salvation, we are told in the very next verses, because he is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So he is not asking for your opinions on which idols you might want to keep. He's not asking. They're all going out on the street. He's taking dominion of you, and so you are invited to take dominion of yourself in him, walking in him, living in him, submitting to him, growing in him, delighting in him and his ways more and more. So we have these promises of, and, and, and the power of God at work in us, and that's really good news because we are a piece of work, and there is a lot of work to be done. Third, third in, in terms of taking um, dominion of yourself, one of the mindset changes that needs to happen is that you need, to remember, you need to remember and remind yourself often that you are now on a new team, and so you need to take off the old jersey. You're on a new team, and you're wearing the wrong jersey. Ephesians 4 talks in this kind of language, teaches us that we have to put off, that we have put off the old man, that we've been crucified in Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have died in Christ and no longer live. Christ lives in me, and I've put on the new man. So there has been this radical change that has taken place in you. The new man is dead, the old man, the old man is dead, the new man has been put on, and we are in Christ now, and Christ is in us. Therefore, we're now to put off, in Ephesians 4, this language is, we are to put off the things regarding the old man, like lying and stealing and foul and blasphemous speech, and instead put on, he says, truth and contentment and words that edify. Um, Colossians, the book of Colossians, similar, says similar things. It says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. 
Why does he use this language of putting off? I think that the language is being used because it, it, it is this idea that you're wearing the wrong stuff. You're, you're, you're doing the things that the old man w- was doing naturally, but you're a new man now. That's not natural for you anymore. Um, so there, there's, much to, there's, there's much you could consider here, but really the one point that I want to make with regard to this is that taking dominion of oneself can be thought of as, as having been traded to another team. You were on the devil's team, and now at a great price, not your own, you've been purchased and traded to the Lord's team. So these are all mindsets that we have to have, first of all, to think about what does it mean to take dominion of ourselves. We have to understand who we are, but more importantly, we need to understand what, how God sees us and what God is up to. Two actions must occur. You must put off the old uniform, that is the practices of the old man, what he naturally did, and put on the new uniform, that is the fruit of the Spirit and the new man that you are. One of the chief difficulties I see regularly in those trying to mortify particular sins in discipleship and pastoral meetings with people, one of the, one of the main problems is, that they, that is the failure to put on something after they have put off. In order to do so more effectively and regularly, I think they have to have this mindset that it's, it's not enough. Jesus is, really has another point, but the, the, the story could, could be used this way. He says, it's, it's not enough to drive a demon out and leave the place empty. If, if you leave it empty, then just seven more demons are going to come in. You, 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 don't, you don't just put off certain tendencies, certain old habits, certain old ways of thinking, certain old ways of of speaking, you have to put on. And you put on, in Christ, you put on the things of the Spirit as He works in you. So, you're on a a new team, so take off that old jersey. Number four, taking dominion of oneself, just like taking dominion of the world, requires imagination. You should think about this for a second. You have Adam, Adam on the earth, and God tells him, I want you to go and fill the earth and subdue it and take dominion of it. Um, there's, there's one point in, in Genesis where we're told that he, um, he shows, or, or the, um, the narrator, in essence, tells us that there are these rivers flowing out of, of Eden, and, and if you go, go down there and explore, you're going to find gold and bdellium and all kinds of stuff. Why? What should I do with it? Imagine God saying to Adam, use your imagination. What, what do you think you could do with it? Look, look all around and see what, what you could do. So that, subduing the earth um, meant that you had to imagine things that aren't and make them come into existence. What opportunities had God brought? What could be improved? What could be used to create something else? It requires seeing nothing in front of you as an accident, but in God's providence, an opportunity. That's taking dominion of the world. But in the same way, taking dominion of oneself requires imagining what it would look like to live in a godly way in every situation of life. It requires with faith in God's power and promises to see the path before you towards godliness as a work that God has prepared for you to walk in. It requires for you to imagine for a moment what it would it be like to live in this situation, to be in this situation, to speak in, in this situation, 
to stand against sin in this situation as a godly man. And this is, um, I talked about this in another talk at a men's conference. I just want to touch on it again. It's, it's C.S. Lewis who coined this phrase, good pretending. And that leads me to this fifth point. Imagination is effective when we practice what Lewis called good pretending. Good pretending. Here's what he said. The sense in which a Christian leaves it to God is that he puts all his trust in Christ, trusts that Christ will somehow share with him the perfect human obedience which he carried out from his birth to his crucifixion. That Christ will make the man more like himself and, in a sense, make good his deficiencies. In Christian language, he will share his sonship with us, will make us, like himself, sons of God. We often, th- we often are reminded of the fact that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ and, in that, and we have his um, both passive and active obedience is, is imputed to us. We oftentimes don't think about the fact that when he's giving that, that means Christ in us, this man who actively um, and perfectly obeyed the Father is, is giving that to us, is, is giving the ability for us to do that. So if we have life in Christ, something like Lewis uh, earlier had called good infection, Um, if we have this good infection taking us over, then we can practice the life of Christ in us through good pretending. He writes, behave as if you loved God and man. Just behave as if you did. In other words, when faced with the command to love my neighbors, I must not sit and try to manufacture warm feelings for them. (laughs) In order to love my wife, I don't have to wait until I have warm affections for her. In order to, 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 to do some, some good act out there, I don't have to wait until I just feel like it. I, I must not sit and try to manufacture warm feelings for them. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Just act as if you did. As soon as we do this, Lewis writes, we find one of the great secrets when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him or her. In a book about Lewis's writings, Joe Rigney writes this. He says, the same thing is true of our love for God. What should we do if we find that we don't have warm feelings of delight and affection for God? The answer is the same as before. Act as if you did. This is taking dominion of yourself. Act as if you did. Do not sit trying to manufacture the feelings. Ask yourself, if I were sure that I loved God, what would I do? And then when you've found the answer, go and do it. This is good pretending. Um, This week, I was working on this talk. (laughs) And uh, and, uh, uh, my wife was gone. Kim was gone uh, visiting our new granddaughter down in Portland. And, And so the house was quiet. It was empty. And I wasn't feeling like loving God. That was me. And I was working on this. <laughs> I said, okay, okay. Well, if I did, if, if a man loved God, what would he do? If, if, well, one thing I know he'd do is he would, he would sing praises. He would sing praise to God. So I grabbed my cantus, and I didn't feel like it. And I opened it up. And I, my psalm readings that day had been Psalm 32, 33, and 34. So I turned. I happen to know I can sing all three of them. So I just, I just started singing. Um, now, I don't know how many of you um, sing or, you know, in your devotions or your family time or whatever you, you, you sing. Um, 
if I'm if I'm doing that, if I'm uh, if I'm pulling out the psalter and, and I'm singing by myself, I tend to sing quietly. I don't want to raise too much of a ruckus or you know just singing to myself. Or I think I'm singing to the Lord, but I feel like I'm singing to myself, and so I'm kind of quiet about it. But nobody was there, so I sang. I, I, I just, I just, I filled the room. I just filled our big living room and let it just bounce all around because I thought if a man loved God, if he was passionate for loving God, what would he do? He wouldn't just like sing like this. He would just, he would just let it out. So I let it out. By the time I finished Psalm 34, I had to get a drink of water because, but I, it was there. It was there. I'd taken dominion of myself, and I was agreeing with the things that I was, I was agreeing with the things that I was singing and saying. I was that man who was singing, who wrote Psalm 34, who was singing Psalm 34. I became that man. This is, the same idea can happen to us in terms of going to church on the Lord's Day. You wake up, and you don't feel like going to church, right? And so you go to church, hoping that maybe there'll be some feelings. In fact, so much of our church services today are built on this. They're built on making sure that I make you feel worshipful, right? We write songs so that people will feel worshipful. Um, but, but really, the, the, the thing that has to happen is before you get to church, you need to say to yourself, if I did want to go to church, if I did want to give myself to the Lord and, and bring my family along and, and come into his presence, what would I do? Well, we picture ourselves in our best moments, filled with the Spirit and sharing fully in the life of Christ and ask what we would be thinking and feeling and doing in those moments. Then, even though the feelings may not be there, we do the deeds we complete the actions. We pray or read the, the scriptures or worship with God's people or put to death our lusts or resist our anxieties. And wonder of wonders, we often find that in his mercy, God turns our pretense into reality. We behave as sons of God and therefore find that the affections of Christ begin to grow in us. This is the work of good pretending and it's part of taking dominion of oneself. I begin to believe I begin, to, I begin to think of what would it be like if I actually believed that I was going into the heavenlies, taking my family with me into the heavenlies before the throne of grace, and then I prepare my family. I don't wait till I feel like it. I prepare myself. I don't wait till I feel like it. And lo and behold, especially in the practice of regular Lord's Day worship, men, there is nothing like regular Lord's Day worship for you and your family in terms of taking dominion of yourself, in terms of being, in being built up to be a servant of, who loves God and will follow him. Um, that's why God gave it to us. That's why he gives us this day of rest, this, this new day, this new week, this new beginning, this renewal. That's why it's given to us. And so, good pretending. What would the godly man do? What would the, the, the man who is, who is committed to following the Lord in this situation, what would he do? Go do it. Don't wait till you feel like it. Go do it. Similar to this is um, 
some words that really come out of Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, but this is the sixth point, and it is this, carpe diem, seize the day. Every day, every day is an opportunity to beat the evil around us <clears throat> and the battling within us. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. <clears throat> there, are, there are really two different ways, two different directions you can take those verses. Listen to them again. Um, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. One way to take these verses, and many people take them this way, is to emphasize that we're to be really, 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 really careful because the days are evil. Wherever you go, you might step in something. It's just out there, all of it, okay? The other way of taking these verses is to emphasize that we are to take advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil, which means there's an opportunity for redemption right here in front of you. There's an opportunity for making something that was unclean clean. There's something, an opportunity to make something that was not holy holy. There's an opportunity to turn something around. Um, I think Paul has that, that in mind. We're not to disregard the days because they are evil. We're to take advantage of them with the wisdom that is ours in Christ. You see, this is, that, this is that more optimistic, energetic, outward-looking outward way of dealing with the battle within and the battle, the battle that I have in order to, to, to be faithful before God. Rather than, rather than kind of curling up into some kind of spiritual fetal position and staying away from everything because it's evil, evil, evil out there, what if God is telling us to, to put off and to put on so that we are equipped to then go and make the world a more glorious place, to make our own lives a more glorious place to the glory of his name. So we pray that God would deliver us from evil, and we ought to believe that he's regularly answering that prayer in his people and through his church in opportunity after opportunity. Deliver us from evil. But the days are evil. Every day is evil. There's all kinds of evil. How is he going to deliver us from evil? Well, we're going to learn to walk with wisdom, circumspectly, carefully, we're going to learn to walk into evil, into an evil situation, to an evil opportunity, to an evil world, and we're going to, we're going to redeem the time. We're, we're going to make the most of the opportunity to bring Christ to bear in that situation, to bring his truth, his word to bear in that conversation, to bring, to bring the work of the Spirit and, and, the, and the fruit of the Spirit applied into my relationship, my, um, my, my situation I find myself at work or at home, I, I'm looking at it as an opportunity. So there's a problem in front of me, there's evil in front of me, and the first thing I think is instead of run, I think here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to speak the truth in love. Here's an opportunity to, um, to, to turn this around from darkness to light. So in doing so, we're imitating Christ. We're imitating our Redeemer. The world was full of sin, rebellion, darkness, and foolish ignorance. What did God do toward this stiff-necked rebellion? Romans 5.8, while we are still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ seized the day. Paul says, in the wisdom of Christ, which is yours, go and do likewise. Every moment of every day has a redemption possibility in it. Seize it. So, so tomorrow, you look for the, you, you, when, when the evil comes, you turn on it, you turn on it with the wisdom of Christ 
and you seize it, and you turn whatever it is from darkness to light. You, you, you take the advantage of making something better, more glorious. Number seven, um, don't squander that opportunity. Don't squander the opportunity which requires you to take faith-filled risks. Faith-filled risks. You remember the story uh, that Jesus gives of the minas being given out. And he, he gives the minas and the, 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 uh, the owner gives the, or the landowner gives the, gives the minas out. And he comes back and he, he wants a, an accounting of what you did with the minas. And, and he's looking for them to have turned to profit. And he commends them for having taken them, invested in them, and turned into profit. We're, we're to turn a, a profit uh, that God entrusts to us. Remember, there was the man who did not invest or risk his mina, and remember what, what he said. He said, I buried it because I knew you were a harsh master. Here it is. Give it back to you. And he was not commended for it at all. In fact, it was taken away from him, and he was cast away. If you do not use your mina, you will lose it. If you do not take advantage of an opportunity you will lose it. And if you do so because you are afraid that you will fail, you refuse to take risks because you have somehow decided that God is so harsh, you dare not take any risks. If you, if you try to be a perfectionist and are afraid that you might stumble a little bit in your activities, in, in your taking advantage of whatever the opportunity is before you, but you might, you're, you're, you're not sure how it's going to work, so you don't ever move, you won't take dominion of yourself. You, you will crawl back into that fetal position of just protection. You, you will become a man who doesn't believe in the power and plan that God has for you. Now, the good news is this. We all stumble in many ways. And the good news is that it doesn't really matter how, how much we fail. Like I said, he's, he's faithful and just, um, and he is uh, going to complete the good work. Um, that he's, he's begun in you, but it might be a little harder on you. <laughs> you, you will hear these words, um, you, you will hear these words of not of commenda commendation, but of discipline. So you'll be held accountable and rebuked. To whom much is given, much is required. And men, men in Christ, men who have been granted salvation, men who have been given the Holy Spirit, Men who have been placed with gifts and talents and opportunities have been given much. Much is required. Much is required. So don't squander the opportunity. Take faith-filled risks. Taking dominion of oneself will require taking risks where you do not know what the outcome will be. That's part of living by faith. And that leads to this next point as well, number eight. Taking dominion of yourself requires cultivating a fierce joy in your portion, in whatever God has given you. A fierce joy in your portion. God's ways are inscrutable, and in this life, we never, ever know for sure what God is going to do with what we accomplish, or with what we fail to accomplish, with what we hope to pass on to the next generation. Is it really going to get there? With our obedience or with our transgressions? God's ways are inscrutable, and Solomon writes all about this in the, in the book of, of Ecclesiastes, and it's pertinent to our discussion of taking dominion of ourselves and of the world. 
when it comes to your life and all of its details, when it comes to your life and all the details of your life, you just can't know for sure what is up because God is God and you are not. And his ways are past finding out. L- listen to this extended passage here from Ecclesiastes. I want, I want, to, I want to emphasize this. It ends with um, great hope, but it really begins with... Um, uh, it's like just cold water on your... You know, just, it's, it's, not, it's not fun at first. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom, this is Solomon... When I applied to know my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done on earth, then I, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. He won't know why God is doing these things, why these things are happening, why, what's going to happen of the things that he's done. It says, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is to love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after, they, after that they go to the dead. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And if it stopped right there, there's no motivation <laughs> to work hard. There's no motivation to take dominion of yourself. There's no motivation to turn a profit because who knows what's going to happen with it. It just, it, it, it just, poof, it's just gone. Life is vanity. That's, that's what he says. It's just, it's just this mist. You, you cannot grasp it. You cannot control it. You don't know what's going to happen with it, with your life, with the work that you give yourself to. You don't know in the end with what's going to happen. Unless you have faith in a God who has those promises and, his, and, the, and the power that he's promised that he has to be at work in you. That's your only chance. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes then kind of closes this with this. He says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. You don't know what's going to happen, but God has already approved what you do. He already knows what he's going to do with it. So go enjoy. Go eat your bread. Go drink your wine with a merry heart. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. (coughs) Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. That's your portion. You've been given this portion. You've been given this wife. You've been given this job. You've been given this house. You've been given these children. You've been given these circumstances. You've been given these gifts. You've been given these difficulties. That's what's been given to you. That's your portion. What are you to do with it? Enjoy it. Receive it from the Lord as from the Lord with thanksgiving and let him do with it however, whatever he's going to do with it. But when, 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 the, when the good comes... In this We really need to practice this. When the good comes, you've got to give thanks to God. Because you're going to hear when the bad comes, you need to give thanks to God for the trials. 
And you're going to be really bad at doing that if you haven't been practiced when it's really easy to give thanks because it's all the good things. Whatever your portion is, he says, in this vain little life that you have, I mean, who's going to know your name 150 years, 150 years from now? Who's, who's, who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna remember a thing about you 250 years from now? Will you even be a footnote in some book somewhere? It's, it's just, it's gone. Wow. So what am I to do? Enjoy. <laughs> Enjoy right now. What, what, because God knows. God knows what he's doing in and through you. God knows how it's going to spread from you and in, into all kinds of areas. It, you don't know. You don't know how many people you have made an impression on for good. You don't know how many people's lives you may have blessed, and, and they've never told you. They might not even know directly that you did it. But God is at work in amazing ways, intersecting our lives and, and, and the things that are going on in our lives into one another's. God's at work. You, you, you should enjoy it. You should enjoy what he's up to. So, there, there's, there's, a, there's this fierce joy, I call it, uh, that we are to have in the face of the vanity. Where can I find, where can I find such joy and merriment and celebration in life? <clears throat> you think of this, why is bread so tasty? Why is wine so wonderful? Why are festive dress and fragrant oils so joyous? Why is a marriage bed so delightful? On the other hand, why is it that so many times these things are given and yet there's no delight, no joy, no satisfaction? What's the difference? It's given to one man and to another man. And one finds great enjoyment in the other and the other is, is racked in trouble for, over it all. Can't find any joy, satisfaction in it. We are commended to enjoy these things and of course we cannot unless God gives the gift of enjoyment, which he freely does to those who are in Christ. It all begins with our justification, and because of our justification, God has already accepted your works. You're not earning salvation with Him. And everything, you've, everything you give to Him, every imperfect thing that you offer to God, every imperfect work that you offer to God, cleansed in the blood of, of Jesus Christ is received by Him, your good Father. Now, now, I'm not saying that he doesn't work in our lives and discipline us and chastise us. I'm not saying, but, but you need to understand, you haven't lost his favor in, 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 in an imperfect act that you do um, for him. If you know the satisfaction of Christ's righteousness given to you, you're on the path to a fierce joy. And then you need to protect that joy. In Psalm 16, it says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. So whatever it is, acknowledge that it is from the hand of God and give thanks for it. Remember, he makes all things beautiful in his time. That's also in Ecclesiastes. Whether or not you understand it and you don't, you can receive it by faith with thanksgiving. The Bible has these hard words. No promises of an easy life. There are no promises of an easy life. But they are words that protect your joy. These, these words are, you maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. If you're in Christ, 
you have a good inheritance. It's just, it's, it's already there. Finally, this is number nine. Taking dominion of yourself requires this joy of the Lord. An optimistic faith in the power and promises of a redeeming God who loves you and loves you more than you love yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. This is kind of circling back around. The joy of the Lord in an optimistic face. We, we talk about having the joy of the Lord. Um, the joy of the Lord is your strength, it says. The joy of the Lord is not first about the joy that you have in the Lord. Because that waxes and wanes. That ebbs and flows like the tide. The joy of the Lord that is your strength is first and foremost the joy of the Lord over you. The joy the Lord has over you. You see, the joy of the Lord is my strength, and I say, but I don't have any joy. It doesn't really matter because He does. He has great joy over you. He rejoices over you with singing. He shows you off to the angels. He, 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 he displays you. He, 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 is, he is thrilled to bring you into his kingdom and make you sons of God with his son and to give you the inheritance with his son over all of the earth. He, he's, he is pleased with you. <laughs> you think, how in the world can he be pleased with me? See, that's what we have to get. You have to get, get rid of that, that um, one, of the, one of the things I had to get over was, um, was self-pity. I remember, I, I remember one time I, um, I called a pastor. So I said, I, I can't, I, I'm always, I'm always, everything is, I, I'm always feeling sorry for myself. I'm always, just, this self-pity comes up all the time. And he said, you know, it, really, um, what your problem is is pride. I said, what do you mean? I, I don't feel proud at all. <laughs> he says, well, it's just inverted pride. You're just thinking about yourself like the guy who's arrogant. You're just, you're just thinking, oh, poor me, like I deserve better. Um, and and um, he said, you know, God doesn't really care about how you're feeling about, about yourself. It doesn't change how he feels about you. If you're in Christ, he's rejoicing over you. What you need to do is get your eyes off yourself and brag about how great God has made you and is making you and is in working in you. It's all God. It's all God's grace. But, but the way you're going to stop feeling sorry for yourself, the way you're going to stop the self-pity is by bragging about the good works that God is working in and through you. And if you don't believe God is at work in you, then maybe you better get on your knees and say your prayers, man. Because maybe it's time to turn to Christ. But if you're in Christ, it's guaranteed. He's at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He is rejoicing over you with singing. He does have a plan for your future and eternal glorification. <laughs> so, so think about this. Call it imagining. Call it faith that hopes for what it cannot see. Call it walking in the Spirit. 
Taking dominion of yourself requires cultivating ongoing imagining through worship on the Lord's day with his people that you have come into the heavenlies with the host of angels and those who have gone before you. It requires cultivating that faith in God's power and promises through deep study in his word, meditating on his truth, singing his psalms, and constantly repenting of your sin. It requires walking in the spirit in order to put to death the deeds of the flesh and love doing so. It requires looking forward to the fruit of all that God is doing through your labors for his glory and your eternal life. You are stumbling. He is not. He is accomplishing more than you could ever ask or imagine. But you are supposed to try. You are to try to imagine. We'll end with just one more quote. This is from C.S. Lewis also. This is from his book, Miracles, towards the end of the book. He says this. He says, There is in our present pilgrim condition plenty of room, more room than most of us like, for abstinence and renunciation and mortifying our natural desires. But behind all asceticism, the thought should be, who will trust us with the true wealth if we cannot be trusted even with the wealth that perishes? Who will trust me with a spiritual body if I cannot control even an earthly body? These small and perishable bodies we now have were given to us as ponies are given to schoolboys. We must learn to manage. Not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we may ride bareback, confident and rejoicing, those greater mounts, those winged, shining, and world-shaking horses, which perhaps even now expect us with impatience, pawing and snorting in the king's stables. Not that the gallop would be any value, of any value, unless it were a gallop with the king. But how else, since he has retained his own charger, should we accompany him? Taking dominion of yourself, final thought, is learning to ride in wild abandon and joy with the king of kings upon horses of glory. I like that better than mortifying the flesh. Taking dominion of yourself is learning to ride in wild abandon with joy with the King of Kings upon horses of glory. Thanks. <laughs>